Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Alina, who's on with us today? We've got Melody Beals, who's a published digital historian of migration and media, and she's a lecturer at Loughborough University. Welcome, Melody. Hello, hi. God, this is going to be really exciting. I love this topic. Kicks off, Alina. So, start with our first question. Can you explain to our listeners what is citizen paced journalism? Yeah, so scissors and paste journalism is both a mechanical process. It's a way that newspapers were sort of created in the 18th and the 19th century, right up until about 1900. And it's also a sort of way of thinking about news. So mechanically, scissors and paste journalism basically means that editors or people who ran newspapers would go and find a bunch of other newspapers that had come out a week or a month or several months previously, and they would literally get their scissors and their pot of paste, and they would cut up all the articles they thought were interesting or funny or would be interesting to their readers, and they would stick them in their own newspaper. So it was a way of getting extra content for their newspapers without having to go and do the reporting themselves. and Where are the ethics in this? (laughs) (laughs) Is it just, oh, well, everyone's doing it, it's okay? Well, it's, it's really strange, actually, because you would think with sort of our modern sensibilities that this is theft and it's intellectual property theft. But no, it's actually considered really good journalistic practice to the point that newspapers would advertise themselves as we have the best subscriptions to other newspapers, so we'll be able to pass on the best bits to you. It was kind of seen as a a mark of honor among newspapers that this was something that they would do. And the other part is, is yeah, everyone was doing it. And it was sort of a gentlemanly to pass on your newspapers and kind of a compliment if they got reprinted. So everyone was kind of on board with it. It wasn't really seen as theft or or unethical. It was seen as um, helping getting your press copy out there. As a freelancer who is constantly getting all their stuff nicked, I have to say (laughs) I am not down with this. (laughs) Categorically not down with this. Is it just a UK? Yeah, this is true. Is it just a UK phenomenon or is this worldwide? And how did it go on for? It's not just the UK, although the UK is particularly prominent in it. It is something that basically everyone's doing. Um, I guess it would be fair to say it starts in Europe um, because it's something that happened with newsletters. So people sending information between merchants or between kings and queens and military advisors. And it kind of fed into the newspapers after that. But it's... It's really the UK and the English-speaking world that excel at it because there are so many places in the world that have English-speaking newspapers 
that it's quite easy, I guess, to to swap them around and get it without having to translate. And so they they move a lot of news through various English speaking countries that way. And there seems to be a culture of it as well. So you get lots of journeymen or sort of assistant newspaper editors, and they learn about this process when they're they're training. And then they go off to Australia or South Africa or America, start their own newspaper, and they just keep doing it. So it's sort of a socialized into English-speaking newspapers. But it happened all over the place, and、um, a lot of news gets translated by London translators, and then goes on to be retranslated and copied in other European or other world newspapers. So London actually ends up being kind of a Notorious clearinghouse of news stories to the point that the French newspapers, the readers start complaining that all their news is just translated copies from London, and they would like their reporters to please start doing some actual reporting as well. <laughs> I love it. I don't. I'm morally <laughs> object to it, but you know what I mean. Yes, of course. I'm interested in. I mean, how did this all start, and why did it start? Right, so it it started basically as a, an economic way of running a newspaper. So when you had the the first newspapers in, and I'm going to start in England just because it's sort of a, an easy place to look at the process. It's sort of during the English Civil War. They're very politically based, and they can fill up their newspapers pretty easily because they're just trying to get their political view across. It's mostly editorials. But when you get to the sort of end of the 18th century and around the Napoleonic Wars, you get this huge explosion of newspapers, and the same thing is happening in America with the American Revolutionary War. And suddenly, you've got hundreds and hundreds of little newspapers run by one guy or maybe his family, and he just can't afford to have any kind of journalistic staff. They don't have necessarily the same political connections or military connections to get exclusive stories, so they really have to rely on getting news any way they possibly can, and it's primarily from their readers or from their personal friends. So they'll get letters that say the newspapers here in France say this or here in Spain say that. Or they'll actually clip them out for them and send them into the local newspaper to sort of help the editor along. And as time went on, this process just basically gets formalized to the point that all of these little newspapers start forming friendships with each other, or at least kind of professional、um, connections, and they start posting the newspapers to each other in order to sort of share their content and share the expense. Of putting together this, and the most important part, of course, is foreign news, because if you're running a newspaper in the the north of England, it's almost impossible for you to send somebody to Canada or to the wars in France to get information. So you're really relying on having it sent into you in in this sort of manner, because. Local news is is not that profitable. Anything that you could probably get by running around your own town, unless you're living in London or or Paris, everyone's going to already know by the time you go to print. So it's really important that you get this far away news sent into you. This is just now dawning on me why you find like I'm just thinking of the Western Times. 
when you look in the Western Times, you find all these international stories and it really good coverage of what's going on in oh, the yeah. world um, in this one random West Country <laughs> newspaper, which has been really well digitised, so it comes up in a lot of search hits and that was basically explaining to me why I find stuff where I do. Absolutely. And it's it's quite fun, actually, because part of the ethics of newspaper reporting at the time is not just um, reprinting information, but it's reprinting it usually without attribution. And so it's really difficult sometimes before we started digitizing things to track down the actual original newspaper. But in a way, it kind of explains their ethics because they're thinking about it as, you know, facts or something that everybody should have access to. So it doesn't really matter to them where it came from, just that it's true and that they're they're giving it to their readers. So it's it's amazing how little attribution you actually find in these these accounts. So it gives the impression they've got these huge foreign staffs when they really don't. Yeah, so I have to ask, what role do the American government and the Royal Mail play in all of this? So it's amazing how supportive they are. You would think this started off as sort of gentlemanly agreements between individual editors. And I say gentlemanly, there were some very um, very active female scissors and paste editors as well. But there's this sort of idea that it was sort of off the record. But actually, the Royal Mail really played a huge role in the the British sense because they offered free transport of newspapers between editors. So if you are a newspaper editor in a small town, you can get subscriptions to all these other newspapers essentially for free because the editor is sending to you free and the Royal Mail isn't charging to post them. And because the Royal Mail obviously expands across the whole British Empire, you're getting worldwide news service for free. The government is subsidizing it for you. And the American government does basically the same thing. Um, they're a little bit more stingy than the British government. They do just subsidize the postage. So it's cheaper to send between editors rather than free. But both of the governments actually talk about it quite a lot. And they say that having a well-informed populace having people actually know what's going on in the world is good for our society. It's this very enlightenment idea of everyone should have access to the means of self-education. And the government was willing to kind of put the, the pounds and the pennies behind this. It's amazing how the, the governments are supporting all of this. It is, and, and especially um, the American government has a really weird relationship with copyright law in terms of this as well. Um, they really do see anything that's printed in the public sphere as being, you know, public goods or public knowledge. And they almost make it a, a point of pride that they have this really well-educated almost middle-class kind of population. And in order to sort of cement that image in a time of imperial growth or just nation building, being able to, you know, cut postage rates in order to achieve it is, it's pretty low involvement, but it actually says a lot about how much they were involved in creating that national educational identity. So what, 
you mentioned an exchange editor uh, in your notes. And I have absolutely no idea what that is. So what is it and what was their actual role? So the exchange editor is somebody who is a sub-editor of a newspaper. So they're they're not the main um, editor or the person who's going out and getting the leading articles for the newspaper. They're actually sort of an entry-level position, and their job is basically to sit in the corner of the office all day and read through other people's newspapers. And so they would get the giant stack of subscriptions that would come in and for major newspapers. So things like the times or um, the Chicago post, this would literally cover their entire desk to get all of these international newspapers. And they had to very, very quickly run through all of these newspapers and create two or three piles of clippings. So they'd have to get news information that was immediately important things that, were relevant to as close to breaking news as possible, wars that were going on, big political treaties or scandals. And those would have to go straight to the copy department and they would put them into the the latest issue. But they also had to find other bits of information that I guess we would put into the, the human interest category. So things that are not time sensitive, that are sort of what else is going on in the world. And those would, generally speaking, be used either to fill space in the newspaper. So if they had a column that wasn't quite full one day, they could use that to fill it up. Um, Or it was used to speak to certain communities within their readership. So the idea of having um, an account of flooding or local farm produce in sort of eastern Australia would be really important and really reassuring in communities in England where a lot of people had immigrated, where their families were living abroad, and maybe they hadn't heard from them in a while in letters. So the local newspaper printing these stories would make them feel like they were being taken care of, I guess, in in that emotional way. But those stories were not time sensitive. So they might be eight or 10 or 12 months out of date, but they still regularly appeared in the newspaper. The final set was something that I think will probably make you cringe even more about intellectual property. Oh God, it's and coming. <laughs> it's, it's the idea of stories or poetry or jokes. So they would find all of this sort of literary material that, you know, hardworking authors had crafted for particular venues. And that would just go in a giant file. And when I was studying this through um, digital means, I found someone there that would appear in 1800 that actually had been first printed in the 1760s. So they were literally 40 years out of date. Um, But they had obviously been a funny enough joke that they had just kind of kept it around the office that whole time and eventually found a spot to put it into the newspaper. Although in that case, they had to change the names of all the people mentioned in the joke to make it more relevant 40 years on. So it was a, a case of literary theft, but at the same time, people wanted their work to be seen. So the fact that it was being spread was not seen necessarily as a terrible thing. At least 
um, not until the the days of of Charles Dickens going around America yelling at all the Americans for stealing his works. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving thirty three percent with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a fifteen stem bunch of tulips for just nine ninety nine each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm fixated on this. Are there any... Because uh, it's interesting with the jokes because we did an episode with Bob Nicholson about mm. um, Victorian humour and he was talking about sources. But are there any incidents of people screaming their head off because they're angry, like copyright incidents um, oh just more power to these poor people who have their stuff nicked i'm really feeling for them right now absolutely so there's a, a couple of cases that are, are particularly illustrative so obviously um i mentioned charles dickens and he is invited to the united states to go on this grand tour sort of everyone in america loves his writing and he's sort of appalled because everyone loves his writing but he's not getting very many royalty checks from the Americans, because they're just constantly reprinting it without paying Feel any him. attention. <laughs> and uh, and he, he, every time he gets invited to speak, he says, you know, you're going to make me poor. You're going to make me destitute. You have to pay for the stuff that you like so much. And that, that didn't go down too well with the American audience. They said, but we like your work. Isn't that isn't that enough? And he clearly didn't think so. And No, because that doesn't put food on my table. <laughs> exactly. So he, he was probably the most prominent. But this process of scissors and paste really goes on until the 20th century. And by the time you get to the 1870s or the 1880s, you really do start getting other newspapers and journalists starting to get very irritated, um, especially places like Punch, who are doing very work-intensive satire, mm-hmm. they get their cartoons and their jokes and their their literary work taken all the time, and they start to really press for the fact that, no, we're, we're putting the intellectual labor in here. This isn't just um, an encyclopedia of facts. You do have to, at the very least, give attribution, but you really do need to pay for this material. So I think it's it does become a really big point of contention, but it doesn't become so much until the end of the 19th century, which really corresponds with in the early part of the period, um, you don't get bylines at all. So even if you work for a newspaper, you're paid for a newspaper, the newspaper doesn't put your name on there. It just belongs to the newspaper. Yeah. When you there's, start having... there's someone writing the royal correspondence in the Telegraph in World War One who is phenomenal and I don't know who it is. Yeah, it's really it's a shame. I guess I guess the idea is that the important thing is that it's been vetted by the newspaper and therefore is trustworthy, so you don't really need to have personal knowledge of who the poor the poor correspondent is. But 
once you start getting bylines, once people start attaching their names to their work, um, that's when people really start to demand payment and, and copyright protection for it because it's actually attached to them as an individual person. Mm-hmm. In terms of copyright, there's a lot of a lot on moral rights and a lot on, you know, wanting to, to pay the bills and give people credit where it's due. But I think that up until the 20th century, there was this huge ideological war about whether or not you could own the news. And right up until the second, I think, um, Berne Convention, the International Copyright Convention, People were not at all sure whether it was morally right to copyright the news, that it would somehow damage society and and gatekeep public knowledge. And I think that debate is what we see a lot of people worried about with modern news and social media and participatory journalism is this idea of where do you find that balance between um, institutionalized news where you have the infrastructure and the support to go and do rigorous journalism, but at the same time, that costs money and therefore that might prevent people from getting that news. And there's all these social and moral and economic questions that just didn't seem to be that relevant in the early part of the period when it was just everyone thought news ought to be free in terms of, of copyright. And I think it's amazing how those questions went away with intellectual property laws, and they seem to have come flooding back with the internet. And I wonder which way we'll, we'll end up going this time around. What was the most important news that they did put in at the time? Right. So newspapers are a weird thing even today. I would say newspapers in the 19th century are even stranger. They're sort of a combination of what we would consider newspapers today, as well as literary magazines and um, generally like posting boards of things that are going on in the community. So you would get lots of information about what was going on in London, what was going on in Washington, D.C. or Paris, the, the major political movements and military movements of the world. That always had an important place in the newspapers, whether that's a major metropolitan newspaper or a little tiny newspaper in a a provincial or regional press. The important thing about that, though, is that it's not a a one-way process. So because they can't really afford journalists to just stay all over Europe and they can't really afford to send people when news is breaking – Sometimes these little newspapers actually get to have the limelight because a major world event will happen near enough to them that they can actually go and get the reporting on the ground. And because they are reporting um, right there where it's happening, they're seen as particularly useful and particularly accurate. And then they get to kind of turn the tables on the big London and Paris newspapers and they get reprinted all over the world through these different avenues. So I think the most important news of the time is always going to be the political machinations and scandals and the military movements or treaties between countries, sort of the what we would normally think of as international news. But that is only ever a very small proportion of what falls under scissors and paste. 
Scissors and Paste tended to be much more about the human interest stories. It tended to be about what was going on in little parts of the world that their readers might otherwise never actually get to hear about. And again, it is a form of reporting that we don't really get in the 20th century, and we're only starting to get it back today with social media. So this idea of this little town, interesting things are happening in, um, but who's going to report on it except for, for local people? So I think Scissors and Pace gave this this voice to smaller areas of the world that it wouldn't have because it didn't have a major port or it didn't have a telegraph station in it. It sort of let these smaller human interest stories really take center stage. And when you don't have a big um, newspaper staff and you've got a lot of pages to fill every day, these are really useful to the newspaper editors as well. So... Okay, so I see a downside to this, which is that <laughs> filling a lot of pages for stuff, I'm thinking of the Daily Mail's website, which is catastrophically right. inaccurate many, many times a day. Um, I'm thinking of this, all of this stuff on social media is vetted and we get misinformation. So is this, does this become, to what extent does it become like Chinese whispers or is it literally cut and pasted so well that you don't lose the original accuracy or do you find discrepancies and misinformation um, becoming prevalent the wider the information is disseminated? So there are two different ways of answering that okay. question. <laughs> so um, when it comes to the, the sort of whispers and, and misinformation by accident, um, I would say this is really rare, actually. There seems to be when I first started studying this, I just looked at newspaper editors as being remarkably lazy because they would copy the text word for word, paragraph for paragraph, almost identically, no matter how many iterations it went through. It took a lot of detective work to sort of figure out the path it went along because they were so accurate. In fact, the only thing they ever normally changed was A, the punctuation, because there's lots of passive-aggressive editors who say, actually, that should be a full stop, not a semicolon. And that would get changed as you went from newspaper to newspaper. But the most important thing that would change would be the headlines. So there's this one account from Australia originally where you have a, a conflict between a British crew and an indigenous group, and every single headline in the British world said dreadful massacre by the Marquesa natives. And some of them added another dreadful massacre, even though there had never been a first one. And this was all over the UK and all over the, the British world. Mm. And then when I found the article in the United States and sort of the American world, it's the exact same headline, sentence for sentence, um, the exact same article. But the headline says, the magnanimity of a native king. <laughs> And it's all about focusing on the fact that the crew does eventually escape because the king helps them escape. And it sort of entirely changes how you read the article. Because I had gone through this and said, oh, this is a terrible article. It's about conflict. It's about death. And then when I noticed the American headline, I went back and reread it. And I realized that nobody died. So it can't really be a massacre. But the headline had done such a good job prepping me for it to be a terrible story that I hadn't noticed that no one had actually died in the process. So that's the, 
the thing about the inaccuracies creeping in, they really only did that in terms of the, the headlines or sometimes through omission rather than addition. So there were also cases of a shipwreck mm-hmm. where the original would talk about every single person who had died um, in this terrible shipwreck. But some of the people who reprinted it kind of cut out all the poor people. So they only talked about the rich people nice. who had died. <laughs> so they, they had some Wouldn't careful editing. <laughs> so there, there are things like that. In terms of, of accidental misinformation, though, there's lots of cases like that. So I think in our modern world, we're so used to the idea of fact-checking and retractions that we expect that if someone really gets it wrong, that they'll have to come out and say, you know, this was incorrect or we have a new source now. But that just really was not the case, especially with scissors and paste uh, news. So in Glasgow in 1800, or rather in 1799, they posted this big article about Thomas Jefferson and how he had unfortunately died of malaria. And it was a real shame because he was running for president. And (laughs) about a month later, they write another article saying that he has, you know, apparently as a zombie, um, won the election and become president of the United States. And at no point in between those news articles does anyone mention the fact that he hasn't actually died, that he never actually had malarial fever, that this was all completely incorrect information. But everyone just seems to sort of accept that, you know, they got a bit of bad information and we're not going to hold it against the newspaper. That I can think of a few historians that operate like this, but I'm not going to name them. (laughs) But this is something that happens now, that, you know, there's one detail, misinformation detail, and everybody is up in arms, let's boycott the newspaper. Fake news, fake news. Exactly, Let's, let's burn the journalist and behead him or whatever, you know. It's it's such a big comparison between what happened then and what is happening now. And I think it a lot of the newspaper editors at the time actually seemed to have a lot of faith in their readers for just this reason. They They talk about the fact that they are purposefully printing news from lots of different sources um, with very little commentary. So they're not saying this is a good source, this is a bad source. What they're doing is they're saying this was written on this date and it was written in this location. And this one was written on a different date in a different location. You, the reader, can weigh up which you think is more reliable and which is more trustworthy. I, as the editor, am not going to do that for you. I'm just going to fulfill the role of gathering news. And I think you're smart enough as my reader to sort of figure out who is or isn't trustworthy in this case. And Again, this is where I, I sort of feel like, are they being lazy or are they just having a lot of faith in their readers to, you know, use their common sense about where a good, if you have a news story about a war going on um, outside of Paris and you've got one source from Paris and one source from Rome, there's a, a sense that you would maybe trust the one that was closer to the actual action, but. I don't know, are you giving people far too much credit for common sense? <laughs> Well, you know, back then they may have had more common sense than we do now. I don't know. They certainly had a better sense of the geography than I think I feel. I sometimes wonder, like, how would they have known where all these small locations were? But 
Um, it seems to be the, the practice to refer to places by local or regional names and to mm-hmm. not give a lot of detail about where these locations are. And, and I struggle and sometimes have to, you know, reach for the atlas to figure out where some of these places are. And it seems to have just been, if not common knowledge, at least you would have the somehow the ability to sort of figure out where these locations were through context in a way that I think a lot of people have lost nowadays. The bane of my life is the difference between Bichuana land and Basuti land. <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't know. They're like, they're all, I think they're all South Africa now, but at the time they were these tiny little tribal states that we were inflicting ourselves upon as Britain. And yeah, I never, ever remember which one is which. But they seem like when you read about them, you're supposed to just know. Yeah, and it's the same with with people as well. They would talk about minor members of government, of foreign governments, with absolutely no context or clarification. And it's so different to when you read a a modern news story, it seems that every time you mention somebody, you have the obligatory one or two sentences trying to encapsulate their entire life for the reader. And that was just never present. There was always this assumption that if this article is important to you, you know who this person is. There's a lot less dumbing down. And I was sub- I was subjected to a whole episode of Strictly Come Dancing at the weekend and the amount of egg-sucking talk that went on that explained <laughs> why people had been socially distanced and why it was kind of telling you why you didn't need to write a complaint to the BBC about people touching each other. <laughs> excruciating. Oh and you definitely don't see that kind of... Um, dumbing down do you no no it's it's much more um much more you if you want to know then they expect you to go find it out on your own and part of this of course is the way that the newspapers were read um if you were able to afford your own subscription to a newspaper you were usually of a um slightly better economic background you'd probably had some degree of formal education and other people reading the newspaper would often read them allowed in groups. So sort of, you know, the, the hive brain of everybody who is sharing this newspaper, you'll be able to parse out who the different people are and, and where the different locations are. So I think there's a lot more communal reading of newspapers as well in this period. I'm just up for a way where I get paid for working. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm simplistic in that way. Just pay me at the end of the day. Stop copying my shit. Pay me. Yeah, basically. Melody, thank you so much for joining us. That was incredibly interesting to learn more about scissor and paste journalism, which I had absolutely no idea what it was. But now I'm so much better informed, especially the copyright laws. Alex got annoyed. <laughs> Ideal. So perfect type of podcast for me. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. No, it's brilliant. It's like um, it's when you messaged us with the topic, I was like, oh, this could be a bit niche. But it's actually it's not niche at all. It's like everywhere. It's a huge part of journalism history. So thank you very much for coming and sharing it with us. Oh, thank you very much. Join us tomorrow when you and Roger will be with us to talk all about the life of Geoffrey Chaucer. Uh, This one was really good because obviously I know he wrote the Canterbury Tales and I know nothing else about him other than the fact that Paul Bettany played him in the film A Knight's Tale and that that was part of his story. So that was literally my ignorant perception of it so far. So we learned all about his life, uh, which was very colourful. So join us for that. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. 
don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.